Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. This is Derek Weston. We have an incredibly interesting episode for you, but first, a quick announcement. Podcast has a new online home. You can find all of the old episodes and new episodes as they are downloaded on foodandfaith.org. The website is the hub for Stories of Food and Faith, a multimedia project we've been working on this year. As the space develops, we want it to be a place where we use all types of media to tell the great stories that continue to come across our radar. Right now, in addition to the podcast, you can also see the first episode of the docuseries, A Wilderness Like Eden. More to come as the space develops. Okay. One of my aims for this season was not just to bring you voices from within the faith community, but to highlight some voices that I think people in the faith community need to hear. Today's guest is one of those. I found James Connolly on Instagram, where he often posts insightful pieces about the food system and gets in arguments with vegans. James Connolly is an artist, chef, nonprofit founder, and documentary film producer with Archer Gray Productions. He co-founded the Bubble Foundation, a nonprofit focused on issues of wellness and food insecurity in inner city public schools. The documentary film production team at Archer Gray Productions has produced films from Transmilitary, a film that explores equal opportunity and discrimination for the over 15,000 active duty transgender soldiers serving in the military, to Michael Moore's latest documentary, Where to Invade Next, where Moore explores issues like mass incarceration, school food, criminal justice, and student debt. James' most recent film is Sacred Cow, the nutritional, environmental, and ethical case for better meat, directed by Diana Rogers, and Diana will also be on the show in a couple weeks. James and Diana also co-host the Sustainable Dish podcast, and James serves as the producer of the podcast Death in the Garden. All right, enjoy our conversation with James Connolly. Okay, we are here with James Connolly. James, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about, but uh, we, we begin all of our interviews by asking this question, what is your geography? What is the place, the food, the music, the culture that have shaped you into who you are today? And um, take that question anywhere you want the geography question. What is your geography? I, I tried to think about this in, in certain ways. Um, as a student, when I was in school, uh, I never read a book uh, that was assigned to me. <laughs> I was a voracious <laughs> reader, uh, but I, I could not like, I couldn't get into, I would obviously read the book, but I, I would, could not get into a book that was essentially like, I felt like libraries were these, you know, massive adventures that you would mm-hmm. kind of walk into. And if somebody gave you a route or a map that you would, uh, and, and told you where the ending was supposed to be, uh, it would ruin the experience for you. Um, and so I think at the time, even though I didn't know how to express it or understand what I was trying to do, I was in essence trying to educate myself. Um, and, uh, a lot of it started in high school. Um, a lot of it was, um, what I would consider to be banned books. Um, I went to a very conservative school growing up, um, so I read like the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, when I was 15. Uh, I started to read just a lot of um, uh, history that was not being taught in school. Uh, and so I felt like I was on this real adventure to figure out what was what was the world that I was growing up in. Um, I joined the military when I was 18. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> um, I, I, it was some sort of weird mix of uh, not necessarily knowing what I wanted to do with my life, um, not necessarily knowing, uh, wanting to make my father proud. Um, and um, joined the military uh, during a period of, I would say, in between the both the the two Gulf Wars. Uh, and what I found there was actually pretty, particularly interesting. I grew up in Queens, New York. It's like one of the most uh, racially and ethnically diverse places on the planet. Uh, it's, so it's a really interesting space. Uh, but when I went down to basic training, I joined as, as a grunt, uh, as a private. Uh, and what I noticed was that everybody who was there was essentially from uh, farming communities and uh, old industrial towns who, uh, you know, and every recruitment station in New York was essentially uh, just in um, 
in the inner city. Uh, and so what I noticed was there was just a, a, a huge amount of what I would consider to be uh, sort of poor and marginalized people who are going to uh, off, off into the world uh, and being trained to be soldiers uh, to fight wars that they didn't particularly want, uh, understand at all. Um, I went to art school. I studied to be a chef. Uh, I did a number of different things afterwards. Um, I uh, got into documentaries because I had spent nearly a decade. Uh, I founded a food nonprofit in New York City, and we mainly worked in poor and marginalized uh, inner city schools, um, mainly charter schools, because they had the facility for changing their food system. Uh, they didn't have to go through a lot of the like you know the hoops that you had to go to. Um, and so we did gardening programs. We did uh, uh, mainly sort of nutrition education, but like sort of you know italian nutrition education like this is food this is delicious you know let's make it in the classroom let's see where it comes from let's talk about food let's talk about where you know who is making it um you know uh so i spent nearly a decade we were teaching about 1500 kids a week wow. um you know uh, we had a whole source of like uh, volunteers who were coming into the classroom and teaching kids about uh you know, nutritious food. And then we're helping to overhaul the school food system while we were there. So we'd build trust within the administration that the kids were not necessarily a barrier for change. If you wanted to feed them like fresh, you know, food and make it in-house, it was actually cost neutral. We were working in sort some of the poorest congressional districts in, in the, in America. Uh, and the kids were never the barrier for change. Um, and nor were a lot of the administrations, but as you moved up the, the ladder, uh, you started to see eyes glaze over. <laughs> mm. um, it, they didn't really see a correlation between education and nutrition, um, wow. which is just absolutely ridiculous to me. I don't, I don't understand how you could sit in a classroom if you're hungry, or you could sit in a classroom if you're just bouncing off the walls with you know the amount of sugar that kids eat uh, nowadays, or disguised sugar. Um, so I, I, I got a little more and more frustrated with it. Um, I spent a lot of time with donors. Um, and, uh, I think if you are working in the nonprofit space, um, and you are spending more time with the donors than you are with the people that you're trying to help, you start to get, uh, really frustrated. Um, mm -hmm. there seems to be a mythology in America that if you're poor, it's your fault. Um, you internalize that poverty. Um, and it seems to be kind of part of an American ethos, yeah. uh, yeah. sort of build yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, culture that doesn't necessarily sort of work. Um, and so I started funding documentaries, uh, stuff that were, um, I wanted to focus on, uh, social justice issues, environment and systems of poverty. Um, and so up until this point, we've produced about seven documentaries. Um, I've been personally involved with uh, pre-production on a few of them. Um, but mainly we what we'll do is we'll get a documentary film producer is about 70% done with their documentary. We get to see what their point of view is. Uh, we get to influence the editing process. We get to influence um, how the film is going to be essentially structured together without, in essence, like, you know, overriding the director's vision, uh, but helping them get it to a point where it's ready for the film festival circuit. And then we will try to help them get to distri distribution so we can get eyes on it and, you know, um, and all of that stuff. Um, so that for me is kind of what I've done. Uh, everything, I think everything that I've done is, is sort of centered around like being, you know, the best human I possibly can <laughs> and helping as many as I can before I uh, exit stage left. <laughs> right. Right. That's great. That's great. Um, yeah. I, I, I love how, and I think maybe you're the first person who's answered that question by starting off with books that you've read. And mm -hmm. I, I, I love that for that part of your geography is, is thinking of what you've read. And I, I think that's a that's a that's true for all of us. You know, so much of, of what actually shapes us is is are the things that we consume and the things that the ideas that we let into our our, our world. And um, so I'm just I, I love that that's where you started. I, I want to go go back to this um, to this nonprofit for just a second. Um, mm. You talk about the 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 kids aren't aren't the issue. 
you know, the administration, not so much, but then there's kind of this higher level where problems start, where people glaze over, where they're not making the connection between food and, and what happens in the classroom. Who's in that room that's glazing over? What is, where, where is the problem here? I mean, it, it generally it's, it, it's upper level administration. Um, and so when you start to move out of the classroom and you start to move away from the day-to-day experience of, of what the kids are eating and um, you start to move into this process that is essentially governed by a lack of understanding of sort of real world issues that are affecting, um, uh, you know, kids in school and families and all of that stuff. Um, I think one of the better metaphors for it or a better understanding of it is, um, is our relationship with schooling um, through COVID. So now we've had a lot of parents at home with their kids, kids on Zoom, uh, and listening to what's happening in the classroom. A lot of it is sort of behavioral. Um, a lot of it is is getting kids to focus on things that are really abstract. Um, you know, for us, um, nutrition education was about like having the kids with their hands in the dirt, uh, with their hands preparing food. Um, so much of what um, uh, our educational system is nowadays, it's abstracted. It's really abstracted. Um, yeah. you, you, you're teaching kids um, something centered around this idea of like, it, it will have intrinsic value to you at some point in your future. Your adult self uh, will look back on your childhood education and all of its flaws and say, oh, I understand what they were doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But for, on a day-to-day basis, uh, it doesn't seem to be working. Um, and, you know, for us, like... Um, we used to have um, home economics in the in the classroom. Right. We used to have shop. Uh, we used to have hands-on, tactile, um, you know, uh, ad- administration of learning, um, which really works for uh, for boys. It really works for um, for people who are non, uh, you know, they're they're not the ac- sort of traditional academic learners. Um, and we've removed all of that stuff. Um, and what is paved is, is a way, you know, I, I think Anthony Bourdain said it's, it's an actual tragedy that, that people can graduate from high school and not know how to roast a chicken, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and we, everything, I think when we look at our agricultural administration, the way that we, we farm food nowadays, uh, the way that we farm it for cities, uh, the way that we have essentially just segregated every aspect of our system so that none of us can really get a good understanding of the complexities of it, um, it is part of that as well. It's like, the way I try to describe it is like, so you walk a kid into the classroom and for 45 minutes, he's a poet. And then he's 45 minutes. He's a mathematician and he's supposed to be a poet when he's supposed to be a poet. And he's supposed to be a mathematician when he's supposed to be a mathematician. <laughs> I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the thing about it, it so for me, uh, ha- being able to hide uh, in the library and being able to hide within uh, drawing and doodling and 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 making art um, was was paramount to my survival in school. And uh, what what do I found now, having three children of my own, is that the administration is so fearful of kids, quote unquote, falling behind that they are on these kids all the time. Yeah. Missed homework assignments, uh, deadlines that are, uh, you know, a child can't pay attention in the classroom. Uh, you know, here we, we recommend this medication or this medication and we're going to we're oh, this medication's not working for your child here. Let's try a different cocktail of medication. Um, and what we found was that this educational system uh, really is is hyper focused on uh, on testing uh, and this like forward momentum that really is just um, puts so much pressure on these kids, yeah. um, you know. And for for what goal? I, I never really understood what the goal of it was, you know, because it, most of the adults didn't grow up within this system. Um, we don't necessarily understand it. We are afraid that our child will be will fall behind and so we kind of we've you know we've essentially fallen into the system where we feel like uh, if we opt out in any discernible way that we're failing our children um yeah and i think the food system is that as well i mean we've functionally changed so much of it 
Um, and you know, the, when you talk about something like a calories in calories out apparatus of, of thinking about the world, um, what you do to the consumer when they started to gain weight is you blame them. They're they're eating too much or they're not exercising enough. Um, and I'm sorry, they, that model doesn't work and it's never worked. Um, but what it does is essentially um, it blames the the end stage consumer for a system that I think is is actually harming uh, harming them, both physically and mentally. Because if you can get the consumer to blame themselves for uh, for their own you know um, health outcomes. Uh, then you never really have to look at the larger system. Yeah, and we're and we're and we're stripping away all of the accountability for the folks who are actually creating the systems that are doing the damage. Um, that that continues to be a part of of this push for you know less oversight, less less um, less accountability for the systems themselves, and more you know personal personal responsibility for right. for being able to do the things that that system does actually doesn't set us up to do i came upon your work your your documentary uh that you a documentary that you produced sacred cow um and i came upon it at a time when i i feel like i was being inundated with food documentaries mm-hmm. and i think the one that i had watched right before um sacred cow was kiss the ground and kiss the ground was fine but there was the but there was this piece that like there were there were <laughs> there's this piece where like at the end of the day i was like okay they're a bunch of celebrities telling me to stop eating meat and that's kind of how i left the feeling i had leaving kiss the ground whereas with sacred cow i left with oh this is about systems this is about understanding um this is about understanding nature this is about understanding how how our our bodies are hardwired this is about understanding uh, how we fit into systems of nature and i found that way more compelling um could you would you mind just giving sort of a a brief synopsis of of sacred cow and and what you found compelling about the project yeah absolutely um I, I came across Diana's work, um, and she's the director of the film, um, towards the end of my nonprofit space. Um, and what I had found was um, most of our volunteers were centered around nutrition and dietetics programs in New York City. Um, some great schools, NYU, Hunter, um, you know, we were... We were these volunteers were, you know, 20, 28 to 30 volunteers per semester were going into these classrooms. And what I had noticed was a huge sort of paradigm shift um, from not necessarily away from uh, what I would consider to be a proper and balanced diet, but towards a plant, whole food, plant focused uh, diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I was constantly grappling with um, was uh, this notion that, um, uh, that meat was the problem on the plate, um, you know. Um, and so what I started to see was a lot of these schools, especially inner city schools or public schools or anything like that, were, were trying to move towards these vegetarian programs um, that were functionally trying to change the landscape of what kids were going to be eating um, and what was sitting on their plate. You know, you're getting somewhere between 50% to 60% of your meals from the Department of Education. Uh, And that can be really nutritious and fulfilling um, and can really help with just early childhood development and education and everything like that. Um, It it can be a a huge paradigm shift, a game changer for a lot of kids. Uh, Or it can be junk. It can be total junk, just hyper-processed, you know, like, you know, plant-based is a bagel, right? Um, You know, (laughs) Um, and so, uh, and a lot of vegetarians, especially when they start out, um, actually don't um, they, we, we call them like pastatarians. They, they just eat a, a ton of pasta. They eat a ton of like refined carbohydrates uh, with maybe some arugula on top or something like that. What I was looking for was, can we talk about what happened to meat production? Um, and the narrative that came about um, in terms of what meat production actually is. Uh, and what we saw over the past 50 or 60 years was a consolidation of the meat industry into two separate entities. So one is uh, we need to 
we need to create these spaces so that we can create these biological environments where we can house as much animal protein as possible, produce it at scale, at cost. Um, and we're just going to, you know, send that out into the world. Um, and when you look at like efficiency economies, uh, what they started to do was say that this is this is environmentally sustainable because we're essentially housing these things. Uh, we're going to deal with their waste or something down the road will deal with their waste. Um, and we're going to, in essence, we're going to move our agriculture system towards something that's going to produce food uh, for these animals. And then we're going to eat the animals afterwards. Um, and a lot of the food that they eat um, especially when you're talking about rumen animals, isn't something that humans would want to eat or could eat. Um, and so what we've done is under this guise of efficiency, we've created and consolidated an entire food system uh, with biological sentient beings um, and, you know, and, and created something that I consider an absolute monstrosity. You know? uh, but again, I want to get back to the point is you do not blame the consumer for the system that he had no say in producing, right. Right. right? And so, if you if it is the best meat that you can afford, then you you buy it. Like you know, the whole sort of ethical movement around that is is ridiculous. Like I I want people to be able to afford the most nutritious food that they can afford, um, and I want to functionally change the system from what it is. So this massive meat production system made enormous. Uh, wealth for a few companies. And those companies went and they consolidated and they consolidated more. And then they started consolidating into meat production, the packing uh, and um, the abattoirs and slaughterhouses. So they actually, they dominate the entire environment. So the, the best example I can use is um, say you want to, you, you have, you have agricultural land, you want to build a chicken farm. Um, and so you go to the bank and you look for a loan. The loan, the loan advisor will say, well, give me a contract that you have with say, you know, Tyson or something like that. So you go and you get a, a contract with Tyson. They give you the loan. You build the building to the specifications of Tyson. Uh, you buy the chicks and the feed from Tyson. Uh, you buy probably the antibiotics from Tyson. Uh, you take all of the risk uh, of housing those chickens. So the numbers that die, any uh, outbreaks or anything like that, you take all of the risk for that. Then you uh, you have to sell the grown chicken back to Tyson for the price that they have colluded with the other four industries, <laughs> right? Um, to give you the, you know, just a, just a marginal share of that. So if you buy like a $25 bucket of chicken from KFC, the, the farmer gets 25 cents of that bucket. Mm. Right. And so, you know, you're bought into this, like, you know, like you have to grow things at scale. Now you're housing, you know, 50,000 birds in here. This is not something you wanted. This is not something that you thought you thought you, know, you were going to create something. Um, and at the end of the day, like, you know, you're stuck in the system. Now, if you complain, then you're going to get the worst chickens. You're going to get mm. downgraded feed uh, and you're going to go out of business. And so. You've stuck these farmers in this cycle of debt uh, that they can't get out of. Um, and now the consumer is also a part of that because now you're getting, you know, downgraded meats, you're getting all of the, the, the after effects of that, right? So the manure has to go somewhere. If you have, say, a hurricane, now these huge lagoons of manure are going into your waterways. Uh, you know, all the downstream effects of that, um, you know, the kill-offs in, in your rivers and all of that stuff is essentially the result of a consolidation of an industry that says it's all doing it under the, the guise of sustainability and efficiency, <laughs> you know? And, you know, essentially like that, that has happened across the board in all of agriculture nowadays. Um, and, you know, they will tell you it's it's for the price of cheap food. Americans want to walk into the supermarket and see this incredible bounty, 
this is what this is the future that we were foretold. Which we would have everything at our fingertips, and we would all be happy, and it would all be cheap <laughs> food and all of that stuff. But we actually pay for the cost of all of that stuff in secondary ways, right? right. So you pay for it in medical expenses. Uh, we pay for it in diabetes medication. We pay for it in environmental costs. Uh, we pay for it in any number of different ways that ha actually have a direct effect on on our pocketbook. Um, and, you know, so for us, like the film was like, wait a second, <laughs> like, you know, what we have is we have all of these food documentaries that are coming out that are produced by animal activists. Um, they're, they're funding the cost of these films. Um, they will come out and they will tell you like to, to whatever consumer you are, right. So you, say you care about health, then you get what the health documentary um, these are these are vegan documentaries. If you care, if you want to be an elite athlete, then there's game changers. Um, then you know, if you care about the planet and the environment, there's cowspiracy. Um, you know, every single one of these things is centered around this original viewpoint: was how do we teach, how do we educate the consumer into the effects of animal agriculture on that? And now, for us, sacred cow is like we understand this. But the animal is not the problem. And the humans eating the animal is not the problem. The problem is we've incentivized a system that only creates wealth at the top 1% of these agricultural institutions. Um, and that's what we've done. Now, if you went back to even in the early 90s, you would have 90% of pig farming was small family farms. Now it's by the end of the 90s, it had switched. Now it was 93% industrial agriculture, consolidated um, animal feeding operations. Um, we essentially removed the farmer from the system. We mechanized and completely changed every single aspect of that. Um, and it only really helps one person, you know, like these small, you know, it, you know and so you kind of get into it. So Sacred Cow was meant to be like, can we just have a reasonable conversation about this you know <laughs> like maybe animals aren't the problem maybe they actually provide an environmental like yeah and anything like all right so take 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 poop right um it, poop is it is an incredible resource mm. um you know it is if you if it is in the environment, it actually provides vital nutrition back to the land. Right. Um, can we talk about methane from cows? Well, what does that do in the atmosphere? Yes, it's a global greenhouse gas. Yes, it, it produces heat um, at a much higher rate than carbon, right? So this is, so um, rumen animals, um, they take in uh, cellulosic material, grasses and stuff like that, uh, and they they use all of their stomachs to convert that into energy. It's not very efficient. Uh, and so there are these methanotropes that exist inside of their stomachs um, that produce these gases. The cows burp, they burp, it goes up into the atmosphere. Well, what is methane? It's it's carbon dioxide, it's carbon and it's water. It's HCH4, it's carbon and hydrogen. Hydrogen, it, it will exist in the atmosphere for about a decade. Then the carbon goes back into the soil and feeds the plants. And then the hydrogen goes into the atmosphere and mingles with oxygen and becomes water, right? And so we have this system that's actually a circular system that works in nature, right? right. It works for giraffes, it works for wildebeests, it works for moose, it works for reindeer and it works for cows and sheep and goats and all these other ruminant animals so why are we blaming animals for a system um that we say is you know environmentally damaging you know it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me so i was like this film will bring balance to the equation um but unfortunately like we couldn't find distribution for it <laughs> so, <laughs> and so the messaging coming out of like hollywood generally is just like no everybody must be vegan right um you know and we can ignore hollywood and they're ridiculous like hollywood has never been on the right side of any fucking issue Sorry, I'm cursing. But That's it's okay. like, you know, <laughs> right? So from like Hattie McDaniel, like, mm. so, you know, from like the brown bag test, did your audience know? Like, so it, you could not get 
into onto a Hollywood picture if your skin color was darker than a brown bag. Right. The, Hollywood has been they they partnered with the Nazis uh, to produce films like yeah. you know like Hitler was he was a huge fan of Mickey Mouse and <laughs> and King Kong you know like they have never been on the right side of any issue they are the, the one of the largest marketing arms of some weird ethos that I just don't understand and why we listen to them for anything is is absolutely ridiculous to me. Yeah. So sorry, that was a rant. No, 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 no. Total, totally acceptable rant. And, and I think I think it's it's important to think like we've we've kind of outsourced that that sense of expertise and wisdom to to an industry um, that really is just there to entertain us. Um, but you know, you you put. Um, I'm trying to think of who was in Rosaria Dawson. You put Rosaria Dawson, um, who I think is a fine actress, but you put her in a documentary and all of a sudden she's supposed to be this authority figure. Uh, I think Woody Harrelson was the narrator. And so again, it was like, mm-hmm. these are, these are the people who are going to give us expertise on, on how we should eat and how these systems should work. Like, they're, no, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're actors, they're artists um, who don't know about these systems. And, and, there feels like there has been this kind of larger profit-driven agenda. My children have gone vegetarian, and we've had some pretty intense conversations about that in, in the last uh, year or so. And just kind of watching as their diets have changed, the number of plant-based options and the market for plant-based options, it feels very market driven it feels very much corporate driven that that and it doesn't feel very connected to the even though it's the idea is sustainability it doesn't feel very connected to nature at all yeah and i and i actually i worry about that a lot um and it's uh i've seen a, a huge push for it uh especially in uh in places like large cities where people uh, have no relationship with agriculture at all. Um, the idea of oat milk, um, which is just, it's just sugar. It's just sugar water, you know, like the, somebody had defined it as gruel, <laughs> right? It's like <laughs> Oliver Twist. It's essentially gruel. Um, there's no nutrients. Any nutrients are added in. Um, it, uh, the sort of bioavailability, a lot of, of a lot of those nutrients is, is almost non-existent. So your body won't really recognize it as food and won't uptake it. If, if I'm completely honest, it, and we can kind of take a small tangent here. Um, I um, I have a hard time pushing back against the vegetarian movement um, within the Black community because I have seen, um, you know, especially with the Black Panthers, um, it, there is an alignment with uh, the way that we raise animals and the Black experience in America. Um, I have I've studied a lot of it. Um, I have seen um a dual sort of nature within uh Tom Hesey Coates's father went vegetarian for a while um he uh there is a, a solidarity within the black community um surrounding diet um that I think is really admirable mm-hmm. uh why would you want to be part of this system if you can opt out of it I, right. um I have also noticed that how much of an influence it's actually had on uh, the development of within within the black? Can we kind of talk about this? Is yeah, this a, a, of course. No. Yeah. Um, so um, I have also noticed that that there is a sort of um, a religious, a fundamentalist religious overtone to a lot of the sort of um, the religiousization, <laughs> if that's a word, of diet. Um, mm-hmm. I've studied a lot of Seventh Day Adventism uh, because it's a vegetarian diet um, that's also uh, um, uh, has a heavy, heavy influence on dietary policy. Um, it, the diet is so much more of a part of their ideology um, than than you would um, than you would think. Actually, um, mm-hmm. it's sort of based off of. Um, a weird sort of esoteric, like 19th century history of vegetarianism um, that 
I, I would love to do a podcast on, but it's really like, it's all over the place. Um, but I have also noticed that, you know, like Richard Wright um, uh, had a short story that was released into a book that came out last summer. Uh, it's called The Man Who Lived Underground. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, the, the actual story itself is, is really interesting because it talks about, um, like, uh, the sort of black man's experience of police brutality. Um, I think this was written in the sixties, um, and how he opts out of everyday existence and he just goes underground. It's very similar to invisible man, uh, Ralph Ellison's, um, book, but it kind of goes into the sort of, um, so the story itself, maybe because it's so omnipresent nowadays, doesn't necessarily sort of resonate except it's sort of prophetic in terms of the way that we're dealing with how much, uh, the, the, the phone camera has, has been able to really bring the world to the idea of what it feels like to be, uh, young and black in America. Um, but the interesting part of it, uh, is the essay that happens afterwards. Um, so Richard Wright writes this essay and he talks about his grandmother who, um, he was raised with for a short period of time, um, who was a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, and it, it talks about um, her understanding of the world, which is centered around this idea of like, this life is temporary. And so she is just preparing for the, for the next life. Um, and it really affected his psychology, his understanding of the world. He says it's essentially the tracks that laid upon his existence so that everything was centered around that track that his grandmother essentially raised him on. Um, and it's a really like beautiful and profound essay of somebody who's trying to understand how he came to grips with his reality. But his, his grandmother was a Seventh-day Adventist, and so she raised the family um, vegetarian. You know, and, and I think within the, the Black community, especially up in Michigan, uh, Malcolm X's mother was a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, the, the, the level of, like, influence that the diet the diet of the Seventh-day Adventists had upon the upbringing, I think, of a lot of these kids um, who, who grew up to be, you know, probably the, the greatest activists of the 20th century. I think when you, like, uh, try to get to a greater understanding of all of this stuff, like, I think it's, it's, it's incumbent upon, um, it, not for me to say in any way, but the understanding of vegetarianism and how much I think it actually has... Um, like had an influence on the black community and especially the social justice work. Um, you know, it's not for me to say, I, I find it just something that I would like love to have more conversations about, um, you know, cause I think it's um, the sort of plant-based movement um, is, is centered around um, a lot of these uh, issues as, as we move towards an agricultural system that is taking its philosophy and forcing it upon developing countries in Africa. Um, you know, we, we have seen that with the Gates foundation, uh, with the way that they are, um, in essence, like, you know, just overriding any degree of agriculture in Africa and saying they have to be part of this pesticide laden, you know, uh, fossil fuel fertilizer, uh, you know, Monsanto seed, um, you know, sustainability vision that I just find absolutely disturbing. Uh, it's almost like a weird uh, new form of missionary work mm -hmm. um, that is centered under the guise of like religious, uh, like scientific indoctrination that has really wants to wipe out a culture um, and force them into um, this sort of 21st century, like, you know, I don't know, techno utopian worldview where everybody, everybody thinks the same drinks Starbucks and you know, all of that stuff. Well, and, and I, I think, thank you for going there because I, I think we nuance is something that we're just as a culture, not very good with. Um, and there is, there is a nuance to uh, African-Americans are the largest or the fastest growing segment of, of vegans in, in this country. A lot of that has to do with opting out of the system and and the ability to actually own land and 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 access to land. And when you have access to land, a lot of that access to land is is only is not enough land on which to raise animal protein. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's only animal. It's only enough land to be able to do um, 
to do vegetables and do things like that, things of that nature. There, there, there's, there's nuance to this, to this conversation of, of sort of the kind of corporate led plant-based, um, agenda i think is is a proper word and sort of the the individual and cultural moments that people are saying we are going to opt out of this system because we think it's detrimental to our communities or detrimental to our souls and ways of being and so i th- I, I appreciate you're adding that level of nuance to the conversation yeah i mean i think with um it there's a one of the largest um class action lawsuits in in u.s governmental history was uh uh pickford v glickman um mm-hmm. and it was centered around um the 20th century's total disenfranchisement of the black community from from their land uh at the beginning of the century there were close to a million black farmers uh by the end um I, you know, I don't even know if we can count the cost, um, but a lot of it was, you know, sheer total racism yeah. uh, from the from the USDA. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, there's a, a really wonderful episode of the 1619 project that goes into uh, a sugar farmer uh, essentially lost his land because what the USDA will do is they will give you agricultural loans uh, to buy the seed and the fertilizer and everything that you need. Uh, but within the black community, it would be pushed off by a month, two months um, during peak planting season. Um, and so you would lose, a, you know, at least one of your crops. Um, if you have a two crop growing season and you lose one and you just, it, it completely unsustainable. Um, and so what we saw was, um, uh, white farmers essentially picking up uh, black land uh, for pennies on the dollar at foreclosures because um, the USDA um, opted for not funding all of that. Uh, it's it's a shitty lawsuit. Um, it's you know uh, fifty thousand dollars for you know multi generational land. Right. Um, you know per farmer. Uh, I think um, Obama tried to extend um, uh, the. Um, the time for black farmers to to be able to go and uh, um, and even just get the fifty thousand, but yeah, I mean, I completely understand the the loss of farmland to the black community is you know, I mean, just you know, it, it's just on on par with um, the loss of land from Native Americans, the total stealing of all of that land. All that agricultural land. Um, there is a wonderful book um, called um, Dust Bowl Dust Bowls of Empire. Um, and she kind of talks about it. She's like, um, white farmers were so horrible on the land that they essentially forced their own migration. Um, and so they would deforest, they would clear cut, they would, you know, just, uh, take every, um, resource from that land, uh, destroy its fertility and then just move on. Uh, and Jefferson even talks about this. So this is happening for hundreds of years. Uh, and so it just meant that colonialism had to keep on going and had to go to the most fertile land that it possibly could um, and had to take more and more. Um, and what we saw after the Civil War was, you know, the period of reconstruction, um, the ownership of black, uh, the, the 40 acres and a mule uh, ownership of black farmland was only taken from Native American reservations. You know, it's like, <laughs> like we can't get out of our own fucking way. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, it's absolutely disgusting. And, you know, the Dust Bowl was, was a direct result of um, this, this process of colonization of land. We, we killed off the native bison. Uh, we killed millions of them because we had to take away the protein um, uh, from uh, all of these native tribes, the Comanches and the Kiawa and stuff like that. Because um, up until that, at the point, they were still a threat to any degree of colonization. Um, they were a force to be reckoned with. Um, you know, the Texas Rangers essentially was founded to to deal with the Indian problem. I mean, there were there were superheroes that these guys would do on horses. And so the you had to take away their food systems. And we've seen that globally. Um, every single time you want to colonize a land or take away natural resources, the first thing you do is take away um, especially meat. 
I mean, we see it with the Sami people in Norway now. Uh, we see it with the San people of Kalahari in uh, Namibia. Everything is done under this idea of uh, sustainability and conservation. Um, we see it in India as well. Um, indigenous lands are always taken away. Food is one of the first resources um, to essentially destabilize um, the power of that community. I mean, I think what we're seeing now with uh, a further sort of dust bowl uh, that's happening in the Midwest. Sorry, I'm I'm getting a little down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm getting myself down. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think what we're seeing is 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 that right. Um, and so for us, like you know, cow is not. It's it's no way like uh, addressing any of these issues. Uh, we, we could not find a way in 90 minutes to talk about all of this stuff. Um, uh, Kiss the Ground, I think, was a good primer for Sacred Cow as well. I think they talked about what happened with um, the, you know, the, the chemistry industry, the use, utilizing, uh, you know, weapons of war uh, against nature to kill off pests. And, um, you know, that whole system was essentially based on uh, the war machine, right? right. Um, yeah, I mean, in so many different ways, it's absolutely unbelievable how much of our system is essentially just a war with nature um a continued war with nature from world war ii and world war one um (laughs) one of the other projects that you produce is death in the garden and i had a opportunity to listen to the episode that you were on um, where where they interview you i I think this idea of a war with nature is actually a, a a part of 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 a mythology you talk you talk about a mythology uh, i really actually love the way that you talk about it and you talked specifically you mentioned the idea of the garden of eden was sort of this idea this what the garden of eden was was pre-civilization i love that one because i've only ever heard really top-notch biblical scholars explain it that way and mm-hmm. so it was really great that to hear someone who's thinking about the food system also describe it that way. Um, but 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 talk a little bit about that that idea of a mythology and 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 how civil and and the mythology of civilization and how that puts us at odds with nature. Like like every one of my ideas, it was stolen from somebody else. <laughs> so, um, uh, Daniel Quinn wrote uh, wrote about this uh, in a book called Ishmael. Um, and um, Ted Turner, yeah, uh, so Ted Turner had um, issued a prize, I think it was in the 70s, and and I think until this point, it's the largest prize ever given for a single work. Um, The Nobel Prize for Literature is always for a a body of work, Um, and so this first-time writer, um, it was centered around, could you create a fictional narrative that could change people's mind about um, the environment and the planet. Uh, And so this first time writer wrote this book um, and it came out and it has a sort of a weird cult following uh, all over the world. Uh, And Daniel Quinn spent his entire life kind of teaching um, how to think like an anthropologist or actually how to think like a Martian, really. Um, How far can you remove yourself from mother culture so that you could tell yourself a story of the world? Um, And one of the things that he... um, uses as sort of a parable is his understanding of um, the Garden of Eden and the book of Genesis. Um, and, you know, for him, it, he w- the, the thing that sort of resonated most with me was uh, we have created a civilization based off of uh, moving out of the Garden of Eden. And so if it actually makes a lot of sense, it wouldn't have been called the fall. It would have actually been called the ascent. Mm. Uh, because we would have left our, you know, clothed nakedness, our superstition, our, you know, our, our relationship with the environment. What we've done is essentially created a whole new civilization that's based upon all of these hierarchies that, um, that have, you know, because the, the thing about agriculture that I find absolutely fascinating is like, say, say you, you spend an entire season growing grain. And that grain is supposed to feed you and all of the other people for a year. Well, what do you have to do with that grain? You have to guard it, right? Um, and so you essentially create you create a, a, a police class 
you have to guard it from your own citizens and you have to guard it from outside invaders. So now you've built an entire, you build fortress walls around your food. Uh, you create hierarchies, you create entire systems that are based on uh, this thing that most hunter-gatherers, like, they don't really have possessions. You, you're moving like seven to eight miles a day. Uh, you, you build bows and arrows, but essentially everything that you carry, um, you, you're not really going to have possessions. And there's just story after story of hunter-gatherers walking into modernity and just being like, we want any of this stuff. <laughs> um, but um, so the so the the Garden of Eden story is sort of centered around that. Uh, what um, and he, Daniel Quinn's idea was that it was actually melded from uh, hunter gatherer stories uh, and then subsumed into a civilizational understanding of a creation myth. Um, and the way that he also describes Cain and Abel is also very interesting because you have one, you have something that has built all of civilization and society, which is grains and fruits and, and, you know, the commodification of agriculture. And then you have these pastoralists who essentially just walk the land to, um, uh, you know, sheep and goats were one of the first domesticated animals. Uh, and so the sacrifices that were made um, Cain you know, gives a, uh, a donation to God of, of grains and, uh, and Abel donates a sheep and God favors the sheep. Um, and so that doesn't make a lot of sense for a civilization of understanding of this ascent into, uh, you know, what we have nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, because what, why would God reject the thing that produces the hierarchy, the structure, the kings, the armies, the all of that stuff. Um, and when you look at, at the agriculture, uh, the a- agricultural and anthropological record, you will see with the dawn of agriculture uh, a movement um, that moves away from hunting implements to weapons of defense. Uh, and so, ironmongery and all of that other stuff actually moves into creation of things that are that wouldn't necessarily be beneficial for hunting, but would be beneficial for armies uh, because you have to guard all of this stuff and you create all of this things right you create an artist class you create a working class you create you segregate all of society and so uh his understanding of it i just find very interesting because the sublimation and the subsuming of these hunter-gatherer stories which i think are warnings against this right (laughs) Um, another story he tells is the knowledge of good and evil. Like, what is that tree of knowledge? Um, and I find that a really interesting idea because what the, the, the narrative he tells is, is the knowledge of good and evil is, so if you wanted to benefit the lion, the lion would always eat, right? If you wanted to benefit the gazelle, the gazelle would always get away from the lion. Uh, each would result in a collapse of both of those species, uh, the gazelle would uh, overproliferate and starve itself. Uh, the lion, uh, if it couldn't eat, um, would also die out as well. And so you have this system of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is the lion eats some days and the gazelle gets away some days. <laughs> and that is balance. And nature like wants balance as much as it possibly can. Um, and so... Um, what humans did when they ate from the tree of knowledge was they said, we don't have to adhere to this anymore. There's no longer a moment where we would have to essentially live from this, uh, this knowledge of good and evil. We can become like the gods uh, and we can create our own agricultural edifice um, that would essentially mean that we eat all the time. And so it consolidated into this agricultural movement that then produced um, food. Um, and the the mythology and the narrative around it is that we would always we could always produce enough food uh, to feed ourselves. But when you again look at the anthropological record, we actually start to see a, um, an upsurge in uh, nutritional deficiencies and bone loss, and we started getting shorter. Our teeth started falling out. <laughs> like we saw that with the dawn of agriculture. But the mythology holds. The mythology is we're always moving towards something greater. This utopia like perfect vision of the world where humans can like exist independent of nature that we can you know and that's what we see now right Mm -hmm. do would you agree that like regardless of how much has been lost 
we're always with this notion that we're like moving towards this greater something. Absolutely. And, and that yeah. we're that, and that, that greater something will somehow not include death. And I think that's, that's another point that you, that, uh, and death in the garden by, by its title, um, kind of points out that like, somehow we have created these mythologies. And I think this is a lot of what happens. And again, I like, I don't want to, I have lots of respect for vegans and some vegans and vegetarians, but a lot of what comes out of sort of that ideology is the idea that we can move away from, that we can eat without there being death. And like, that's just total nonsense. Um, And, and I think you're absolutely right that we're, we're constantly striving towards this thing that somehow doesn't include nature when we go to when we look at the scripture and we look at that that those first couple chapters of genesis we kind of go back to the fact that the first thing god asks humans to do is to keep until and some uh hebrew scholars say a better translation of that is to serve and protect the land um and and that that's actually what we're designed to do is to be in service and protection of the land. Part of what a lot of the conversations we have on this show uh, are about is, is getting people to reconnect to uh, essentially an original design of that. We're supposed to be in harmony with nature. We were created to be in harmony with nature. We're created to exist alongside fellow creatures. Um, and, and, and that death is a part of that. You know, I think I think we're we're moving away from nature to our own peril, um, in, in in so many ways. I mean, as as we've um, you know, one of the things that, um, and this is a tangent, but um, one of the things that we've discovered is that, you know, uh, our, our our emotional health is linked to our our abilities to connect with the natural world that depression and anxiety are higher in cultures that don't have access to the natural world that that we're designed to be in in these natural spaces and that's it's hurting us to not be in them yeah one of the things i always thought about was sort of interesting um a wonderful book called cows save the planet um Mm. Uh, Judith Schwartz read it, but um, she had a, also a book on water. And she said one of the more interesting aspects of what civilization is, is um, the city's fear of water. Uh, hmm. So everything the city does is to <laughs> take that water and remove it from the environment. Yeah. So concrete so and true. sewers and gutters and alleys and, you know, everything is about shuttling away water um, from that environment. And I, I always find it's an interesting metaphor for, you know, uh, how much uh, even the Bible talks about, like so much of the Bible's metaphors are about, mm-hmm. the you know, agriculture and, and rain and products of the environment and seeds and um, all of that stuff. But the idea that water would also be like a harm um, is also in there as well from the yep. great deluge and all yeah. other stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I just find it kind of interesting, uh, you know, especially when thinking about like the, the total removal um, in cities of, of almost everything to do with what nature is. Um, you know, it's, I find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And growing up in Queens, like a kid growing up in Queens, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, if I'm not spending some time in nature, I, I feel at a loss. Um, and, you know, like, listen, I, and I'm reading a book right now um, on uh, on psychology and it, so much of our modern world is centered around um, dealing with these things um, that are symptoms of a larger problem. Right. Um, and so uh, the diagnostic and statistical manual that is used, um, which is a tomb, it's like this thick of every single mental disorder that humans have. Um, everything is disordered. There's no like idea of an ordered human. Being. Mm. <laughs> like I don't even know if it has an understanding of what happiness is. Um, yeah. I mean, I just find that so fascinating that like our mother culture is is meant to deal with every symptom um the way that uh a lot of the uh 
the, um, the functional medicine doctors are trying to deal with it now. So the Western medicine will, uh, if you've got a rock in your shoe, will go and give you like painkillers right? <laughs> to deal with the rock as opposed to removing the rock from the shoe. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, I feel for that. I mean, I think it's hard. I think um, when we look at the level at which um, modernity technology has segregated us from all of the things that make us human uh human contact human you know real conversations uh you know just moments of uh awe um you know we're, we're constantly in the inundated with this idea of like you know there's always somebody who's going to be younger prettier faster stronger <laughs> right. like you're constantly bombarded with this idea of like perfection and um and it moves into or or constant youth, right? Mm-hmm. Jeez, I'm almost 50 years old. Like, you know, <laughs> I just realized that this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm turning 48 in January. I'm like, oh my God, I'm almost 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get I get that. <laughs> um I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I, w- I do want to be respectful of your time. I, so, so we we end our our conversations asking, and we've we've talked about a lot of things that that are yeah. are are downers <laughs> and they are depressing. But um, what gives you hope, and and not sort of a, a hope that ignores all of the problems and things that we've talked about, but a hope that kind of gives you a resilience to kind of get up and and still face them and do the work that. Uh, you feel called to do to make the world a better place? Because I read so much about, uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it even evils. It's just like industry. Um, When I break myself, when I've delved too deeply into something, I always go back to uh, like just good writers who write like uh, good mythologies, good Mm. stories. Um, And I do really enjoy like Stephen King novels and I enjoy like Neil Gaiman. Um, I love, I I think um, the stories that we've even told ourselves from the very beginning uh, about um, a hero's journey, um, you know, it gives me, gives me hope that people will continue to do that to, um, to, you know, St. George and the dragon, um, to go out into the world and, and figure out like what, what is actually like hurting us, um, as a people. Um, and, um, you know, that really does give me hope. I do feel like there is a massive paradigm shift. Even when I started the nonprofit, nobody talked about food, Mm. you know, we didn't talk about food in the way that we talked about it. Um, we didn't talk about sustainability um, with real advocates for understanding that. We didn't talk to, um, in you know, indigenous elders about how they maintain, how they um, they uh, they are stewards of ninety percent of the biodiversity on this planet. Like you know, um, elevating those voices um, has has been a real paradigm shift, um, and. You know, I I think, um, you know, even just listening, it, I think there is a, a real sort of uh, change that's happening now. Everything, even the vegan movement, comes from a, a real dissatisfaction, um, and I applaud them for their tenacity to go after an industry that I think is is really um, really abhorrent. So I, I think that's that's the thing. Um, podcasts are amazing. They changed my life, you know, uh, in so many different ways. Uh, you know, just a barrier for entry for people to have real conversations. It's like mm-hmm. really just changed so much. Um, you know, and you know, if if somebody invites me on, I'm always honored to have a conversation. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to just keep on talking, um, and figure out like, you know, it's figure out like what's, what's actually happening in this. So I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't hopeful, if I wasn't like really romantic about a vision of, uh, a greater universe and (laughs) yeah, no, that's great. Um, so we want to take this, uh, next couple of minutes to just, um, plug away any of the work that you're doing, any places where people can find you, connect with you, connect with your work. Um, Go ahead and just shoot all of that out. 
Uh, sure. Um, I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, Primate Kitchen is is mine. Deathinthegarden.org is our latest project. And we're currently in pre-production and filming. So we're, we're following a number of different leads um, surrounding that. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, really just Primate Kitchen. I'm somewhere on Twitter, but <laughs> usually it's, in all honesty, it's it's mostly like I've had two whiskeys and I'm arguing with like people over nothing. I, don't follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really understand it. It's a weird platform uh, and stuff like that. Archer Gray Productions is, is the parent company. Uh, it's female run, female driven, you know, uh, mostly, uh, independent film uh, and then the documentary side of it um, I would really recommend people see some of the films that we've done Mole Man I think is really interesting um, just talks about the way uh, that we treat mental illness in America mm. um, but a really kind of interesting story that uh, didn't get much attention you can find it pretty easily I think um, and then Transmilitary uh, talks about the four, roughly 14,000 um, transgender identified people currently serving in the military and what their life is like, um, uh, both good and bad um, and stuff like that. So, um, and just, you know, like have fun, read books, lots of books, be, be like a librarian, just walk in there, just random chance, you know, um, <laughs> you know, window shop in, in libraries and bookstores. Yeah. Read. I love that. <laughs> James, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad I got a chance to talk with you. Thank you for coming on the show and uh, thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the food and faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org. <laughs>